This episode is dedicated to my brother, Sean. A good poem, indeed, is one which even the most accomplished reading cannot exhaust. Little do Pete and Betty suspect, little do Pete and Betty suspect as they chug over the desert wasteland. Part of the 20th century mind. Desert wasteland, wasteland. Part of the 20th century mind. Wasteland. Part of the 20th century mind. Can never give an exact notation of the author's metric. The chief value of the author's record, then, is as a guide to the rhythms. For most of us, there is only the unattended moment, the moment in and out of time, the distraction fit, lost in a shaft of sunlight, the wild time unseen, or the winter lightning, or the waterfall, or music heard so deeply that it is not heard at all. Or music heard so deeply that it is not heard at all. But you are the music while the music lasts. But you are the music while the music lasts. This is the conclusion of a novel in which the narrator is um, unreliable. It illuminates, it illuminates the face. Characters at the edges and on the edge. Remaining a perpetual possibility. Lonely, violent, deeply American life. Only in a world of speculation. True ease in writing comes from art, not chance. Very fine is my valentine. Very fine and very mine. You're listening to the Grand Podcast of this with John Pistelli. Great and puffed up with his retinue. Hey everybody, you're listening to the Grand Podcast Abyss. I'm your co-host, John Pastelli, and I'm here with Mont Semblable, Mon Frere, Sam Worthington. Mont Semblable, Mon Frere. Sam, how are you doing today? Uh, comme si, comme ça. Peut-être. Uh, très bon. Très bon, mon ami. Oui, oui, so it's April, John. And I couldn't remember, is, is April the cruelest month or is April the coolest month? April is the cruelest month. Well, it's going to be the coolest month when we get through it, the time, because we're going to be discussing some poetry today, and I also think in some future episodes for the month of April. Poetry, John, but poetry doesn't make any sense. <laughs> poetry makes nothing happen. Um, I can connect nothing with nothing. Yeah, and uh, and we're discussing poetry that particularly doesn't make a lot of sense, uh, famously doesn't make a lot of sense. Which is the poetry of T.S. Eliot. Mm. Um, today, I think uh, we want to discuss the Wasteland and the Four Quartets. And drank coffee and talked for an hour. Um, probably his two you know, most famous, renowned, longer poems. Now, at the top of this conversation, we reference the first line of the Wasteland. Of course, April is the cruelest month. And we took um, advice maybe from the four quartets to begin at the beginning. That is not what I meant at all. That is not it at all. In my beginning is my end. Yeah. We began at the beginning. And when you talk about this poem, which was released onto the world a hundred years ago this year, it's a um, centennial anniversary, 
how do you begin? How do you begin at the beginning when you begin to, th- <laughs> to think about the wasteland? Well, I, there's so many ways to begin, uh, because as we know, in my beginning is my ending. And time yet for a hundred indecisions, and for a hundred visions and revisions. Mm-hmm. We're just going to be very annoying about this here, folks. Mm-hmm. Um, so uh, maybe I could, maybe one of the things we could do, Sam, because mm-hmm. we mentioned Elliot a couple times in this podcast already, uh, leading up to this episode, and I thought maybe we could do a little little if it's not too self-indulgent a little autobiography because i know you had uh actually a lot more academic experience with elliot than i have i'm more of a private reader of elliot flailing academic experience (laughs) so i thought that maybe we could talk about that so i um though i did study modernism in graduate school as as on the novel side not the poem side Uh, and i've taught the wasteland a number of times in various classes but um i found it when I was a teenager, because I, we have to go back to our comic book episode. Remember when we were reading Watchmen? So um, another famous British graphic novel series of that time was called Sandman. And that frequently made reference to Elliot. Uh, so in the tradition of the elusiveness, yeah, um, you received this, the, the elusive awareness of of the artist Elliot, I did through the, these quotations from this comic book. Yeah, and um, and so I was reading this comic book, and I was like, "Oh, what's what's T. S. Elliot?" I am no prophet, and he has no great matter. And so I went to my, you know, thirteen years old, twelve years old. I went to my little suburban branch library and checked out mm-hmm. the poems of T. S. Eliot, and I read. I don't know if I got through the wasteland at that age. I, I definitely read the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock, mm-hmm. and that just blew my mind. And I read much of the night. Eliot, in his essay on Dante, says that he started reading Dante in Italian before he knew Italian, mm-hmm. but he could tell it was great poetry. Now, what is this an argument for? Or what is this um, experiencing a text without full comprehension yet gaining is that that must be some sort of literary um uniquely literary treasure we're talking about i think some people don't like like some people when they don't understand they're just repelled but i when i was a teenager i kept like i was fascinated by elliot by joyce by these writers not ever really understanding what they were saying but something about the phrases said to mm-hmm. me that this was serious. This was something I wanted to understand. Mm-hmm. Uh, this was something I wanted to know that I would be, I don't know, enlightened, illumined, mm-hmm. uh, Gnosticized if I, if I could just understand this meaning. But I was also happy to let the weird rhythms of it kind of flow right. over me. Arrayed on the inarticulate with shabby equipment always deteriorating in the general mess of imprecision of feeling undisciplined squads of emotion. And so, yeah, I started reading it then. Um, I, I, then I took a modernism class in college. This is kind of funny. The modernism class was reassigned at the last minute to a Victorianist specialist in children's literature, mm-hmm. which is a somewhat well-known person uh, who's a very kind person to me, somebody I admire. But her sensibility was very not in the modernist zone. Like, this was a mm-hmm. specialist in Anne And we're going to have time. we're going to have time today to get a better understanding of what the modernist zone is. Yeah. So. 
Come back to tell you all. I shall tell you all. But we were reading in that class. We read The Wasteland. We read uh, The Dead. We read Mrs. Dalloway. And she kept saying, as a devotee of Victorian literature and children's literature, God, this stuff is so depressing. Like, how can you stand this stuff? And mm-hmm. I kept, I really wanted to find words to explain to her that these books are actually, like, when I finished these texts, I felt exhilarated. Like, mm-hmm. more so than at the happy ending of... Like a patient etherized on the table. <laughs> Perhaps, yeah. <laughs> um. Let us go then, you and I, when the evening is spread out against the sky like a patient etherized upon a table. But, but I, this was just a woman who would come and go, speaking of Michelangelo. <laughs> sure. You know. In the room, the women come and go, talking of Michelangelo. She never dared to eat the peach. Do I dare to eat the peach? <laughs> We're going to be real annoying about this. Um, so, and, and I always wanted to find these words for why these books, like Mrs. Dalloway and The Wasteland, that superficially are depressing are, are really not. There's some, some triumph, some, some sublimity to them. Yeah. Um, so that's really, and then I, you know, in, in graduate school and then in my adjunct career, I taught The Wasteland in several classes. And it's a really fun poem to teach because the students come in and I say, who understands this? Mm-hmm. And like two people will raise their hands. And then we talk about it for an hour. And then at the end, I'm like, well, who feels they understand it now? And then everybody raises their hand. So mm-hmm. it's like very rewarding to teach in that way. You know, if I was teaching that class, my desired uh, outcome would be at the end, gauging their understanding, the two that had raised their hands. <laughs> put them put down, the, put their, right. Put their well, hands down. That, is, that should be the final <laughs> step. At best, only a limited value in the knowledge derived from experience. That should be the final step because who that's, fully that's understands? That's twit, twit, jug, jug levels. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's rock and no water. Um, that's that third shadow. <laughs> oh, yeah. We'll also talk about we'll that. Talk uh, about the third I had a shadow. nightmare about that when I was in that modernist class. Yeah. I had a nightmare about the, uh, the third who walks mm-hmm. beside you. We'll talk about that. We'll read that passage. Who is the third who walks always beside you? Well, there's so many things to get into about this poem. It yeah. almost makes my head want to explode. Oh, I know. Well, why don't Because you... you're right on the verge of it. You're always always already on the verge of some astronomically profound um, realization in this poem. Yeah. But you're always a couple of meters behind it. Right. And, you might, and it might even curl into some strange, commonly experienced like social situations or it might dip into the mundane and good night bill good night low good night may and then dive into the into the apocalyptic burning 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 oh lord thou pluckest me out oh lord thou pluckest yeah how do we want to start talking about it well why don't you since we let's not leave our readers in suspense why don't you tell us your history with it and then we'll get right in my history with the wasteland well, your academical Elliot studies. Folks, I don't remember anything from my academic education. As soon as I got my degree, I went over to Europe and had some subliminal uh, brainwave surgery done to totally delete every, <laughs> everything I learned. I thought that was the only true and just thing to do right. after an experience like receiving a four-year degree from, a, from an institution of higher ed. Do you know nothing? Do you see nothing? Do you remember nothing? No, I'm just kidding. 
this poem has always been more impenetrable to me than the four quartets. Um, oh, wow, it's a reverse for me. Mm-hmm. I don't understand. A, to this day, I don't understand the four quartets. Mm-hmm. I think this poem to me is, um, it only grows in possibility of interpretation and the horror depicted, and it is horror, it ends with deprivation and a, a type of eternal consignment to deprivation. But yet, I there's a sense of the generative, and there's also an oscillating between the aforementioned and the most precise of social particulars and social speech and radio sounds and trash on the sidewalk and and urban rivers and scenes of the metropole and and common dynamics of of human relations the river bears no empty bottles sandwich papers silk handkerchiefs cardboard boxes cigarette ends or other testimony of summer nights so i would like to figure out how he puts those two um, aesthetic achievements which could stand alone in tandem in a work that is always evading its own verse but has its natural spoken rhythm. Yeah, and I think that that, um, it kind of goes back to what we were saying in our Thomas Mann episode. I won't bore you with the repetition, but Eliot writes an essay on Joyce's Ulysses where he talks about how one way to control what he called the panorama of futility and anarchy that is the modern world is to overlay mythic consciousness upon it. So, but what the wasteland does is it overlays a number of myths. It, it's not just one, and they're sort of overlapping and clashing, and there's too many interpretive possibilities. Mm-hmm. Would it have been worthwhile to have bitten off the matter with a smile, to have squeezed the universe into a ball, to roll it towards some overwhelming question? Now, the poem's first, I think, academic readers took the main myth at the root of this very seriously. Uh, I think more seriously than Eliot did. The first wave of interpreters. Yeah, like your new critics, your Clint N- Brooks. And, oh, well, of course, Brooks, yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, I love all those guys. Yeah. I love those those literary critics back when it had uh, dignification. And, right. <laughs> and, and stakes to it. But so the first wave, what was the central myth that they were, uh, that they could not... Um, uh, move their eyes from. So the central myth is the myth of the quest for the Holy Grail, which is, it goes back to medieval romance in in various languages and traditions where um, the knights of King Arthur, some of the knights of King Arthur, particularly Percival, Parsifal, however you want to say it in the different languages, um, are in quest of this object, which is the chalice from which Christ drank at the Last mm. Supper. And there's all these ancillary parts of the myth, like the Fisher King, who is this wounded king, mm. yeah. often depicted as wounded as in the thigh, so there's like a sexual implication, who's sitting on a riverbank fishing and his fields behind him are infertile and wasted and he has to be cured. There has to be some cure for him. So the king embodies the land, so you have to cure the king. Mm-hmm. and. When Eliot's writing The Wasteland in the early 20th century, uh, he's getting this from a book called From Ritual to Romance by Jesse Weston, 
And she's getting it from James Frazier's The Golden Bow. Because this is an early period of an explosion in anthropology and things. An explosion in anthropology. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, Not very satisfactory. And so what Jessie Weston thinks in her book, and she's getting it from Frazier, is that these myths are actually the formalization of what had been the fertility rituals of the Celtic tribes in Europe. Okay. And they get into the Arthurian legends where they're superficially Christianized, but these are actually pagan Gnostic texts that run under the Christian tradition. Okay. Because the Holy Grail is a fertility symbol because it's a yeah. vulva. And so... And, Excuse me? <laughs> a vulva. A vulva. <laughs> and... Uh, a Volvo. <laughs> What's the thing from Underworld when I touched her Volvo? She sobbed. Do you yeah. remember that car yeah. joke? Right. Um, but um, yeah, that this this is a like a hidden ritual lore anti-Christian fertility cult that comes back in the 19th century in Tennyson well, Christian, and Wagner. Christians get all their good ideas from the pagans, right? That was a way of putting it. Not very satisfactory. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I'm Catholic. I should know. Um, <laughs> But um, I, I think Eliot had his tongue in his cheek with some of this. I don't think he was. He writes this before his Christian conversion. He, he's, he writes this in the early 20s. He converts fully to Christianity in 1927 to Anglican mm -hmm. Christianity. But I, I don't. I think he had a very much of. Well, a, I have a theory about that. Okay, which which his conversion. No, the the Fisher Price. Um, Fisher King. No, the Fisher King. <laughs> The Fisher King interpret in that first wave. I think he didn't want because only if only a nerd would fixate on that interpretation. Yeah. <laughs> so he did just enough of it to distract the nerds completely, so they didn't ruin all the good stuff. Right. And so he let all the good stuff go to the to the uh, the worthy critics. Yes, <laughs> that's possible. Yeah, he was dissembling um, to get the nerds off his back. Yeah. And there's so much satire in this book of the occult at the beginning with Madame oh, Sosostros, yeah. who had a bad cold. And, right. like, he doesn't take that kind of theosophy stuff very seriously. Famous clairvoyant. So I think that – I think there's something arbitrary about the choice of the myth. It's just – again, in his Dante essay, which he writes after his religious conversion, he says that um, – what a poet wants kind of like religion and philosophy for is, is a source of clear images. For you know only a heap of broken images. So I think he gets some nice images from this myth. Mm -hmm. But I don't even think, I think some of the other myths he uses are actually more emotionally key to the poem, particularly the myth of Philomel from Ovid's Metamorphoses. Okay, so so the, the Fisher King, that's a, a, a head fake. And... That's one level. See, great works of art, they always have a surface level in which there's a popular engagement with it. Like with The Master, for instance, my favorite film is, oh, it's L. Ron Hubbard in Scientology. I say, it's a one level, mm. okay? It's one level, introductory level. You can stay there if you want, but do you know how many levels there are after that? There's infinite levels. Yeah. So do you want to go to infinite levels or stay with one level? Right. So Fisher, Fisher King, one level. So Fisher where, Price. Fisher Price, one level. <laughs> Uh, so where do we – so we broke through that. So so, what really is happening here in this poem? Oh, swallow, swallow. I think the beauty of it is how much is happening. I okay. think there's autobiography. 
I think you can see Eliot's life. He writes very candidly. Well, it's not candid because it's not, you don't know if you don't know anything about his life that he's writing about himself. But once you do know about his life, he writes this practically when he's in a sanitarium um, after he's had a mental breakdown, you know, in his disastrous first marriage. Um, and there's these incredible lines, like I think um, I think it's everyone's favorite, but the one where he says, and this is directly autobiographical, he says, on Margate Sands, I can connect nothing with nothing. Nothing will come of nothing. <laughs> right. So Shakespeare. Yeah, exactly. Um, and and that that I mean, right there, you have a Shakespearean reference, but it's his personal life, like. Everything has these multiple resonances and multiple levels. And you see behind every face the mental emptiness deepen, leaving only the growing terror of nothing to think about. As you said earlier, there's so much of this poem that's in the vernacular, like the section at the end of um, a game of chess, because the poem is in five parts for our readers. Uh, so part it's a nice Pentecost. Nice pent. I was going to say pentagram. Oh. Uh <laughs> What's a Pentecost? Pentecost is um, when G- when God sent the tongues of flame to okay, the okay, apostles okay. so they could speak the yeah. languages in which they were going to convert people. Yeah. And a pentagram is? A five-sided star that represents the d- devil. Okay. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I'll take the Pentecost. Thanks. Fiddle with pentagrams or barbituric acids or dissect the recurrent image into pre-conscious terrors. To explore the womb or tomb or dreams. Yeah, there you go. Um, so at the end of the second part, a game of chess, there's this marvelous passage where it's a conversation in a pub, and it's these two women talking. They're what they're actually talking about is abortion. Um, about this woman needing to get an abortion, and her husband's coming back from the war, and throughout it, the bartender is calling, "Hurry up, please! It's time!" Right. Hurry up, please! It's time. And then the end. The way the passage ends is they're all leaving the bar, so it ends with, "Hurry up, please! It's time! Hurry up, please! It's time! Good night, Bill. Good night, Lou. Good night, May. Good night, Tata. Good night. Good night. Good night, ladies. Good night, sweet ladies. Good night. Good night." which is Ophelia's parting words in Hamlet before she mm. goes to her death. So this, he writes in every type of language and every language in his world he writes. Well, the implication, it's an implication of perception and it's an implication of rapid association and that he can enter into, you know, in the brown fog of London and into the metropole and into the pub and he can see the greatest heights of English literature and character, stage and drama, he can see that and read that and formalize that in into the mundane. The pleasant whining of a mandoline and a clatter and a chatter from within where fishmen lounge at noon. Yeah. And, and create a poetics based on that. Mm-hmm. Had that been done? Because po- poetic traditions up to that point um, if we're not, in, of course, he loved the Elizabethan drama. Maybe for that reason, that proximity to the mundane and the obscene vitality of of, of commoners and and the people um, and waste. Uh, but if I look at the history of English poetry in in between it, there there's a, a highness, a loftiness, and a detachment from that subject matter. Whether it was the subjectivity of the Romantics. Or uh, um, um, the tight formalism of uh, of the neoclassicists was he bringing it down to a level here? 
Is that a fair question? My people, humble people who expect nothing. You know, it's a fair question. I think the answer is twofold. I think he he was very keen on creating his own canon. So he wanted to defeat the 19th century as part of his like conservative politics that we can talk about later. So he positions himself not as the heir to these English classics of the 19th century so much as French uh, symbolist and decadent verse. And he's drawing for some of these effects, I think, on some poets we don't really read in English to this day, uh, mm-hmm. Jules, Jules Laforgue and uh, some guy Corbiere. I mean, I, I just know these names from the criticism. Who were drawing on Poe because we start everything over Who, here in the United States. Right, yeah, it's coming out of Baudelaire. Yeah. So he's getting it from Baudelaire. But then there's a, a whole other thing, which is that I think a lot of Eliot's criticism is in slightly bad faith. Um, I think he's denying English influences in a way that's false. And so I would say Whitman and Browning would be the two English precursors to this because Browning writes the dramatic monologue. So he introduces Mm -hmm. this idea of writing in multiple voices and Whitman gives you the demotic, the the, urban. In the free verse. In the free verse, yeah. Yeah. For us, there is only the trying. The rest is not our business. Well, you think his criticism is bad faith? I do. I totally agree. Okay. But that's what makes it Genius. Yeah, no, that's true. And I wrote a, I wrote a big ass paper when I was a senior. I wrote a, suddenly remembering my education. <laughs> yeah, I, I've read it. <laughs> <laughs> I wrote a big ass paper. Yeah, you were actually the professor I was working with. He didn't even read it, so you're the only professor who read it. <laughs> <laughs> that's happened to me. I've, yeah. I've submitted papers. No, he, and... he read it. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, for sure. Sometimes they don't. Oh yeah, sometimes they don't. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry. Go on. They Your give paper. you an A for them being lazy. Right. Um, <laughs> So I wrote this. No, I shouldn't. I shouldn't defame. I, it, was a, it was a good experience. Good course. Elliot and War. Thunder rolled by the rolling stars simulates triumphal cars deployed in constellated wars. Anyway, so <laughs> <laughs> that was the course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it's gruesome. Yeah, mustard gas and mm-hmm. gas masks and mm-hmm. trenches and. The type of anticipatory trauma as uh, who's that hot shot at Penn? Um, what's his uh, Saint Amour? Oh yeah, Paul Saint Amour. Anticipatory yeah. trauma, mm-hmm. the good old days mm-hmm. when people's nerves were shot. Yeah, and they didn't have anything to take for it. Or when under ether, the mind is conscious but conscious of nothing. Yeah. <laughs> well, didn't they take cocaine? <laughs> yeah. Well, maybe they did have things to take for it. Yeah, the chemist said it would be better. But uh, what was that line? The chemist. The chemist. Um, is that? Let's see. The chemist said it would be all right, but I've never been the same. You are a proper fool, I said. Yeah, the chemist said it would be all right, but I've never been the I've same. I've never been the same. Which is, I think that line's about abortion, not about... So pharmacological drugs. Oh, I was going to say vaccine injuries. No. Anyway, go on. You and vaccines. <laughs> Can't you just trust them? <laughs> trust the science. Just trust the science. Anyway, your paper. I got a vaccine and I felt fucking great <laughs> afterwards. <laughs> I felt actually I was struggling with my masculinity at the time. Uh-huh. And they <laughs> and they shot me up with this thing. That, that very afternoon I went to the gym. It changed my whole entire month. Wow. I don't know what they put in it. <laughs> I don't know what they put in my dose. But that's an on, that's an ongoing concern between me and the United States government. Okay, I don't want to bring you guys into that. 
So your paper on Elliot and War. Your paper on Elliot and War. Yeah, Elliot and War. Okay, so. <laughs> oh, boy. Super soldier. I love you guys. Who's ever listening? Uh, who's ever made it this far and who's, who's, who's ever yet to come? Uh, um. No, but I made the point in the paper um, it, because you ju- you brought up this poet critic in yeah. Bad Faith, and I said I totally agree. My thesis in that paper was Eliot's role model was Alexander Pope. Mm-hmm. Alexander Pope was not just a poet but one of the most influential critics in the history of, of <clears throat> English literature. Mm-hmm. And he quite literally, quite formally, he synthesized that of the poet, the work of the poet and the critic. Um, uh, uh, between um, wit, wit and judgment, between um, the poet and the writer, um, he collapsed those in his famous essay on criticism. And is it an essay? No, it's a verse. True ease in writing comes from art, not chance. So he was an ultimate synthesis. Um, and funny enough, that's the one period, and he's the one writer which Eliot had a degree of reverence that he did not explicitly write about or toy with pope yeah. I, I maintain the thesis that eliot had some sort of some sort of um, respect for pope in the tradition in the sense that eliot could not accomplish what he did as the poet critic but he tried in his own modernist variation and one of the ways he did is through like you said a bad faith almost disingenuous criticism which was not really the work of a critic at all but was a a, a, a critic setting up the tastes so as to serve the impact of his own poetry. Right. He knew he had to do that. Right. And so it wasn't objective. <clears throat> no. It wasn't principled. It was completely wedded um, to his um, personal project, personal literary yeah. project. Trying to unweave, unwind, unravel, and piece together the past and the future. And you know, we all do this, those of us who write criticism and creative mm-hmm. writing. I do it too. Um and you know, and you can see it if you were, well, you 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 actually can see it, Sam, because you've read my fiction and my criticism, and you mm-hmm. know that I disparage a certain type of novel and uphold another type of mm-hmm. novel, and it's clearly connected to the what kind of thing I write. So, and I can track the symbiosis. Uh, symbiosis. Yeah, yeah. And we all do it, but what's so remarkable about him is he set the tone of English literary studies for fifty years. I mean, his personal. He won. His personal myth triumphed. Um, and the the only reason you and I are so easily saying it's in bad faith is because that eventually got displaced by a bunch of uh, later critics who were able to expose the ways in which it was We're able to say that there actually was never a historical event called the disassociation of sensibility. <laughs> right. It's not even clear what he's yeah, talking about there. A, it's not a plot on 17th century England. Right. It's an Eliotic um, um it's an Eliotic uh, uh, critical fantasy. In my beginning is my end. Yeah. And even his politics when he becomes, and this is the way in which he, he might have admired Alexander Pope, because Alexander Pope, I think, was these things, and he could only pretend to be them. He said, I am a royalist in politics, an Anglo-Catholic in religion, and a classicist in aesthetics. And you, first of all, you can't be those things in the 1920s or today. He's just like one of these people on the internet that we always make fun of, like Bronze Age pervert or something, who's substituting a an aesthetics for a, for a 
ultra-reactionary politics that's no longer possible. Almost ridiculous. Almost, at times, the fool. But it's also just false to look... When you look at his work, you would never say this is classicist. This is based on some kind of neoclassical model. The It's, it's free verse that's sort of brilliantly syncopated and... Um, and and rhythmic and borrowed from from jazz and the modern voices and yeah, but what when you ask him what he thinks, he thinks we are rats in an alley where the dead men lost their bones. <laughs> right. I think we are in rats' alley where the dead men lost their bones. So what is that sensibility? If it's not cl- if it purports to be classicist, but it's steeped in vernacular and free verse and experimenting am- amalgamating images and modernity and then what what is it what has he done or what is he trying to do here that people are so interested in hmm. was that that's a good question uh, <laughs> well i think i think the work is just much richer than than his theory of what it was or his overt theorization of what it was yeah. or his manifesto about what art should be a rat crept softly through the vegetation dragging its slimy belly on the bank um the art is so much more in tune and maybe you can answer this because you took that class um he sets himself up in a way in this poem to be a spokesperson for the generation of the great war Mm-hmm. But he didn't fight in the Great War. I think I think his brother-in-law fought in the Great War, so that was someone who was very close to him. Thank God he didn't fight in the war. Well, yeah. <laughs> he might have turned out to be a, a regular old Wilfred Owen. Right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, oh, yeah, a lot of the First World War poetry actually is pretty classicist um, in its form. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, he, yeah, he didn't go. I don't, I don't know why. Was he too old? Or I knew he had a congenital hernia. Maybe he was disabled in that sense and couldn't. He dissembled into a rat on a bank and got away. <laughs> right. Um, and he worked in a bank for the – that's the other thing. Maybe we should um, mention something at some point, which is his anti-Semitism. Yeah, see, that's the specter hanging over Elliot. Yeah. And um, I've heard mixed things about it. I've heard, oh, Pound was worse. and Pound was worse. Um, and he didn't – you know, he didn't – well, tell me what you know, because I don't know too much. I, we don't have to make apologies for him as a person. I think he held this prejudice that was – it was ambient at the time and all sorts of writers, including ones we revere politically more than we revere Eliot or we tolerate politically more than we tolerate Eliot, also had it, whether we're talking about Hemingway or Edith Wharton or Willa Cather. So all sorts of people at this time had it. It was easier to be anti-Semitic before the Holocaust. That is something we will say. Um, he's the, where it comes up in his work, though. It's very vicious and cruel. Um, Letter to a Christian nation. <laughs> that's Sam that's Harris. Sam Harris. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what, what's uh, what's his one? What's his? <laughs> I don't know. Dude, Sam Harris makes his his debut on the pod. <laughs> Sam Harris, come on the pod. Come on the I, pod. Actually, don't. I don't. <laughs> I like Sam Harris. Do you? I'm not a fan. You know when you know when Sam Harris is good. You know the best time for Sam Harris when he's writing articles called "In Defense of Torture." Well, <laughs> no, go ahead. I I harshed your butt. It's, it's like like the best time for graham crackers and milk is 11 p.m. Uh-huh. Uh huh. The best time for Sam Harris. You know what it is? 
It's when it, it's when a, a Christian annoys the shit out of you. <laughs> sure. That's the bit right after. Right. And and Elliot is a Christian who will annoy the shit out of you with his anti-Semitism, for one thing. So it's the cruelty with which he expresses it in some of these poems. So he there's four, I think there's four anti-Semitic texts of Eliot. So there's a book to read on the subject, which is um, by Anthony Julius, who was Princess Diana's lawyer. Uh, he wrote a book called T.S. Eliot, Anti-Semitism in Literary Form. And he goes through all this very carefully. And there's three poems where Eliot particularly, or four poems where Eliot particularly insults Jewish people. And mm-hmm. there's a passage in his prose where he says a Christian society should not have, he says, free thinking Jews in it. He says religious Jews may be okay, but free thinking secular Jews are a problem. Because by his later career, he has this ideal of the organic Christian society, and he doesn't want interlopers. Mm -hmm. His early poetry before he's Christian, he perceives the world as chaotic, and he hates, I think— Here's the thing. I can't take his anti-Semitism seriously because it's so obviously a projection of what he hates in himself and what he fears about himself. Which is – you wrote about this on JohnPacelli.com, which is a sort of impotent cosmopolitanism. Yeah. Here's a guy. He's born in the Midwest. Then he comes to Harvard. Then he comes to England. What's he do in England? He works in a bank. Um, he has all these struggles with his body. He has this hernia. He has this disastrous marriage. I think he struggles with impotence. He's struggling with nature, with money, with feeling out of place. Mm-hmm. And so he imputes all these things onto Jewish people. And that's why when he refers to Jewish people in the early poetry, including in a passage of the wasteland that Pound ironically cut out, he refers to Jewish people as like enmeshed in material, in nature, as animal. He says, Bleistein stares out of protozoic slime, and Rachel Ney Rabinovich tears at the grapes with murderous claws. And Jesus. these it's terrible. But he's it's not like Pound where it's a theory. It's not like Pound where it's a coherent philosophy. It's an outburst. It's an outburst of self-hatred. It's purely racism as this projection. I don't get it, man. Yeah. I don't get it. I'm just going to be honest here. I don't get anti-Semitism. No, I don't either. I don't. Um, I've never even been close, really. No. Maybe once when I was a, fre- once when I was a freshman and I read Nietzsche. <laughs> right. It's like, there's like one or two days where, and you know how he enables the. Though I, I, have, I have a theory about Nietzsche, which is. But we'll, we'll save it. But yeah. it's like one or two days where I was like, I think I understand why people hate Jews so much. Yeah, because they're resentful and not strong. Yeah. Um, well, but, I think. But for the most, I mean, I mean, out of all the things you could hate, out of all the popular objects of hatred and ethnic rivalries and all these, that's the one that seems to me maybe the highest stakes because of what history has done. But one that I just don't understand. I think it's harder for Americans who aren't Jewish to understand. This goes back to what I think we said on earlier episodes about Europe, about the small homogenous nations of Europe where people who live there feel that they're rooted to the land or something. And Eliot wanted that. He wanted to feel that. So he took that up by adoption. 
and he renounced America. But most of us Americans, whether we're Jewish or Gentile, don't have this sense of the organic mm-hmm. blood and soil that makes sense. rootedness. So that this accusation against Jews would fall on people who aren't Jews in America just as much. So it's right. harder to wrap your head around. I think that's a helpful explanation because in, domestically we are nomadic. Yeah. It's like one of the only countries where when I'm 18, I'm going to move to New Jersey, and then I'll, I'm going to get a job in California, and then I'm going to have kids in, in Washington, or there's this sort of pinball etern- internal nomadicism to the American experience. Also, we are sort of an internationally like conscious nation, but in a younger nation. But if you go to Europe with older provincialism, um, with blood and soil traditions, I can understand how that could create the conditions for the horrors um, of the 1930s and 40s. Yeah. And maybe he, and he, I think uh, the dry salvages, um, that's his most American. I think he writes about the Mississippi in that one. That's one where he's uh, uh, imitating Whitman. I think the river, yeah. the strong brown guy. Yeah. yeah. But other than that, there isn't a whole lot of Americanism in Elliot. No. And he, he overtly rejects it. Um, in some of the same ways that Pound did. I think they, I, I almost wonder if they didn't become anti-Semites. I don't, it's not that there was an anti-Semitism in America, especially back then, there certainly was, but it was more of this ambient prejudice than the way you have it so threaded through European philosophy, um, <clears throat> you know, in figures like Kant or Hegel. Absolutely, that makes sense. <clears throat> So with the getting back to the wasteland, what are some passages that are key for you? For me, I think I I mentioned this earlier. I think the most important myth at the core of the wasteland is not as much the Fisher King and the Grail as it is the story of Philomel from Ovid's Metamorphoses. Um, and this will take us to Eliot's oh, yeah, yeah. gender politics as well. So at the beginning of a game of chess, he refers to it. Um, he's describing a woman sitting at her toilette, uh, putting on her makeup in this beautiful room. And he says that um, above the antique mantle was displayed as though a change gave upon the sylvan scene, the change of Philomel by the barbarous king so rudely forced. Yet there the nightingale filled all the desert with inviolable voice, and still she cried, and still the world pursues jug-jug to dirty ears. And then that comes back almost in this, like, um, almost nonsensical type of, like, remix version a few pages later. Remix, that's a key word for Elliot. Yeah. Mourn a little bit. So he, twit, 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 jug, 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 so rudely forced Terry Twit, twit. And so the the myth, if, if you read Ovid's Metamorphoses, the uh, ancient Roman poet and his compendium of myths of transformation, it's a story about... Um, it's a terrible story. It's at the root of, of Shakespeare's most notorious play, Titus Andronicus. It's about a woman who, her sister gets married to this king, and then the king, and this woman, Philomel, her sister gets married to the king, Tereus, and Tereus um, rapes Philomel. And so she doesn't tell what's happened. He cuts out her tongue. To engage her in caresses, which still are unreproved, if undesired. Flushed and decided, he assaults at once, exploring hands encounter no defense. 
so she can't testify. Mm. But then she eventually communicates it to her sister, and they get revenge on Terius. I think it's one of those stories where they uh, kill the, the, his child and feed it to him. And then the metamorphosis is that she's changed into a nightingale at the end, and she can now sing her tale. And I think there's this—Eliot is a remote, a cold, sometimes a mean poet, satirical poet, uh, icy poet. But I think there is this romanticism that we see in this image of the nightingale that— harks back to Keats and romanticism whose um, whose body can be violated but whose voice cannot and this image of the poet as transformed into this visionary singer is something that haunts the poem as a kind of wish and that's why it comes up so much interesting and Eliot who's overtly on the surface a misogynist which I think is true enough um, sympathizes with women in certain ways throughout this poem who are the victims of various kinds of male domination or male violence from go said the bird violence from the woman whose husband is coming home and she's had five kids already and she needs an abortion to the scene of the typist who is date raped by the clerk mm-hmm. and that scene is often read as Elliot's looking down on these two common londoners because he's scornful and elite but he's he's a clerk he's working in a bank when he's writing this mm-hmm. so i think he sympathizes with these figures and is writing about what he sees around him and she becomes the philomel figure but when he leaves after their um somewhat exploitative sexual assignation she puts a record on she doesn't sing you know she resorts to popular a commodified copy. copied yeah. culture yeah perfect so there's this romanticism in Eliot that he's trying to disavow through his criticism and everything mm-hmm. but i that's always for me been the emotional heart of the poem this music crept by me upon the waters you have a novelistic brain if i brain if i brain imaged your brain a a, a fucking novel would appear on the image scan mm-hmm. you got <laughs> great expectations would show up in your brain scan <laughs> right <laughs> <laughs> So you got the novelistic brain, which allows you to, and correct me if I'm wrong here, allows you to have visions or images when you're moving through a text and to really see what is happening or put together a picture of what is happening, correct? Yeah, Yeah, that's why um, I've never been much of a writer about poetry because I I really experience literature almost more as images than words. For you know only... A heap of broken images. So, and those have colors and shapes and like tones, mm-hmm. movement. Your images have movement. So you see characters, you would see the movement of their bodies. Um, and obviously different novels, part of the art is sti- is stitching together different images. It goes without saying. When I read uh, Jane Austen or when I read Emily Bronte, or when I read um, when I read Wordsworth, there's a a definition that's stable in the scene. There's colors that aren't well. Bronte can get extreme, but there's colors that aren't so extreme. There's pixelations that are move gradually. Scenes shift logically. It's a coherent, imagistic environment for me. Yeah when I read those type of writers. Mm-hmm. And when I read Elliot, I can't imagine what other people are are seeing. Yeah. 
I can't imagine the images that it sets off in other people's head. And if I had to describe the type of images I've, I see in the wasteland, they'll probably be like unlike any others. So how do you see, how could you describe the colors and the vision of this poem? When solitude in the mountains, but red sullen faces, sneer and snarl from doors of mud-cracked houses. Yeah, I, f- I almost feel like colors are dominant. I feel, I see, because he talks about fire. Because there's there's three sort of elements in this poem. There's fire, water, and rock. Um, and so I see fire, and I see orange and red, and I see water, blue and cool, and then I see rock, gray, and or brown and bare. Cracked earth, ringed by the flat horizon only. But he talks about um, the unreal, the fog of the unreal city. Oh, unreal city. Under the brown fog of a winter dawn. Brown, yellow fog enrapturing everything. Um, but he also describes sort of decadent, you know, the violet hour, he says. It's the mm-hmm. violet hour, which I guess is dusk when you have your whatever bad sex you're managing to have in this hideous modern world. Um, so there's a lot of like grotesque purple, violet, brownish, yellowish um, those colors well you're moving into the fire sermon yeah. which we could talk about yeah but an extension of the question what about when these characters or these people appear what do they look like what are the expressions do they have in their <laughs> face are they suspended in normal domestic and professional environments are they on the street yeah where are the people in the wasteland yeah like, sometimes they're inside something because we have the tavern the pub we have the typists like apartment we have but then there's passages that seem like they're taking place outside, like the um, the river sweats oil and tar, the barges drift. Um, he describes a woman having sex in a boat in a passage I don't really understand, or he's quoting Dante. By Richmond I raised my knees supine on the floor of a narrow canoe. He gets propositioned by a Greek merchant who wants to take him to have an affair in a hotel, but where's that happening? I, too, awaited the expected guest. Yeah, it's all very suspended. It's suspended. Yeah. There's no stable ground here. He sees the people walking over London Bridge, and he quotes Dante, I had not known death had undone so many. I'll tell you the one animated uh, figure in this poem that is most locked into a stable uh, imagistic scenery for me. Mm Mm-hmm. It's second second uh, stanza of the fire sermon. A rat crept softly through the vegetation. Yeah, yeah. Dragging its slimy belly on the bank. Hieronimo's mad again. What about the fire sermon? Yeah, and, and this might even be... This um, is where things heat up. This, <laughs> thanks, Sam. Yeah. Um, and this might be a, uh, something we, that can lead us eventually into the um, four quartets. Because another remarkable thing about Eliot is that in one sense, of course, we talked about his anti-Semitism, and he certainly had that bigotry, but he was in other ways very cosmopolitan. And he studied Sanskrit, uh, Sanskrit literature, and was very influenced by Hindu and Buddhist texts. So in The Wasteland, he quotes a sermon given by the Buddha, which is the fire sermon where Buddha says, everything is burning with desire and you need to quench stanch this this flame and become unattached 
Um, he's influenced by the the Hindu text of the Upanishads, in which gives the wasteland its ending with that that word, that da word that everyone has to interpret. Da da. And then in the four quartets, it's the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu scripture. So the first thing that that um, I want to say about the fire sermon is about this broad-minded cosmopolitanism that he thinks you need to supplement. Uh, not, not even supplement. He sees connections. His version of Christianity is very much about mysticism. It's very much about sort of leaving this world and, and turning your back in certain ways on this world. A proper mystery. Yeah. And he uh and I think he sees kinship in those more ascetic Eastern traditions. Yeah, asceticism is uh it's it's fun in theory, but in practice <laughs> is I it, don't know. Is it even fun in theory? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know in practice. You might get pretty hungry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, yeah. And then the other thing I want to say about the fire sermon, I mentioned this in my essay on johnpastelli.com, is my favorite part. I I think my favorite – this is a great poem of transitions because everything is – He's writing this just as cinema is developing and there's so many just cuts. So you think all the people who are transitioning their their gender right now could benefit from – well, yes, because Which brings up Tiresias. I, Tiresias, though blind, throbbing between two lives, old man with wrinkled female breasts. Yes. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot in this poem that's slap, very... Slap them titties, Tiresias. <laughs> but before, let's get back whoa, to whoa, Tiresias. Whoa. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Be careful. You were saying about the fire sermon, about I, transitions. There's so many great transitions in this poem because it's not a continuous narrative and it's not a continuous lyric. It's He moves from one thing to another to another. It's very like rapidly cut. I wish you wouldn't do that. <laughs> Can't you just write like a normal person? Um, but the fire sermon ends in this apocalyptic outcry that's a conflation of a quote from St. Augustine with a quote from Buddha. He says, to Carthage then I came, burning, 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 burning. O Lord, thou pluckest me out. O Lord, thou pluckest, burning. And then you turn the page, and it's the next section, section four, and that's called death by water. And so you have this, whoever this composite speaker of the poem is, is on fire and then is immediately mm. doused in the water. Mm. And death by water is a positive thing because it's the, the sea change of the tempest. And he describes Phlebas, the Phoenician sailor, who when he died, he forgot the profit and the loss. And then... Eliot, who had wanted to include an anti-Semitic tirade in this poem, and Pound told him not to, ends up with, Gentile or Jew, O you who turn the wheel and look to windward, consider Phlebas, who was once handsome and tall as you. Gentile or Jew, O you who turn the wheel and look to windward, consider Phlebas who was once handsome and tall as you. Now, you wrote on, on johnpastelli.com that there's some element of uh, broadness and inclusion in that, in yeah, those lines. Yeah, I think there's something uh, positive about the way that Pound of All People told him, take this exclusivist, anti-Semitic stanza out of this poem. And what Eliot is left with is addressing his whole audience, Gentile or Jew. 
And so he achieves this in this moment, a kind of transcendence of this ugly bigotry. Now, what the thunder said, mm-hmm. part five. Then spoke the thunder. See, sometimes I, <laughs> God, I've got a Peter Robinson thing. You know Peter Robinson? No. Uncommon knowledge? No. Oh, man, you're missing out. <laughs> it's Hoover Institution. Oh, boy. Get over there, you amiable neocon. <laughs> Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> By the way, audience, we love feedback. <laughs> no, Peter, Peter Robinson, man. That guy's a class act. Sometimes when I'm asking you questions, I feel like Peter Robinson. <laughs> it, it's it's not as you gotta. Is he like a Terry Gross? Uh, he's like he's like if oh he's way better than Terry Gross. Okay, and Terry Gross is good. Mm-hmm. Peter Robinson. Oh man, there's so he's a boolean. Mm-hmm. He never misses a step. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> he comes so well prepared. <laughs> Oh man, we got to get into Peter Robinson. You got to get into Peter Robinson. Man. Okay, that guy will make you a neocon so fast. <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's so amiable. Okay. Um. <laughs> okay. So what the what the thunder said? Here is here is my favorite part of the poem. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so we've gone through what we've gone through: myth, mixes, classicism, modernity. But what we're left with is deprivation is some sort of extreme situation and Elliot writes here is no water but only rock rock and no water here I'll do my Elliot voice here is no water no I won't do it okay here (laughs) here is no water but only rock rock and no water in the sandy road here is no water but only rock Rock and no water and the sandy road, the road winding above among the mountains, which are mountains of rock without water. If there were water, we should stop and drink. Amongst the rock, one cannot stop or think. Now, and this gets into, we can talk about who the, who is the third who walks along, always beside you. Yeah, I like, I like that part. I'll read that part later. <laughs> well, my question, what... Where, where do we land here in this poem? And is this a poem of survival and horror? Or have we reached a landscape that, and this gets into questions of tradition, which Elliot is obsessed with, mm-hmm. have we reached a landscape that has at once shown its fidelity and engagement with tradition, but is totally new? in this place of rock with no water mm. or you've reached the stony hard place. Like you've reached the aesthetic yeah. where everyone is a little bit fucked up and like, mm-hmm. we don't know if everyone's going to make it out of here, but you've hit this terrain. Yeah. I, hmm. I guess I always read the end- ending of the poem as more or less redemptive because after this, you get the thunder that does seem to presage the rain. And that's where you get the, the word da that he gets from the Upanishads. So there's a story in the Upanishads where, um, I don't want to get this wrong, I'll read it from the footnote of the Norton Critical Edition. God presents three sets of disciples with the enigmatic syllable da, challenging each group to understand it. Each group is supposed to understand the syllable as the root of a different imperative, damyata, control, for the gods who are naturally unruly, data, give, to men who are avaricious, dayadvam, compassion, to the demons who are cruel. And so... 
we actually get, as much as this is a severe, difficult modernist poem, we actually get actionable advice from it. Give, sympathize, control. And it ends with this vision of peace where he says, shanti, 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 which he translates into Christian terms as the peace which passeth understanding. So, so rain comes. Rain comes. We get... Morality blossoms. We get wisdom. We get morality. We get... Good, good advice. I think give sympathize control. Um, you know, insofar as control is control yourself, uh, give sympathize control, and then you'll attain peace. So it ends oddly, t- minutely in a way. And I don't say that to disparage it. I think you can get wisdom from literature. There's nothing nihilistic about this poem. I don't think so. Not once, not never. I'll, I'll just say about the Rachna water landscape. Yeah. Almost almost in the Dost, Dostoevsky sense. Mm-hmm. And that we, we, we chase the zone, we arrive at the zone's bewildered, hallucinogenic, um, dehydrated, um, maybe part of our, our bodies are burned. Rock and no water. But we've a, you arrive somewhere that maybe is not the most healthful or, or, or accommodating, but you hit a terrain um, that is the reward of the aesthetic that can only come through a certain amount of like like self harm. Rock and no water. Stumbling in cracked earth. Rock and no water. And the rock, no water. <clears throat> mm-hmm. But you're there tripping out. Yeah. At the end of the <laughs> right. Right. Hieronymo's mad again. Well, in the four quartets, he has that passage about. If you want to possess, you must go by the way of dispossession. Like, you know, there's, yeah. this, there's this purgative. The Purgatorio is his favorite ca- canto of Dante. You have to go through this purgative dark yeah. night. And I'm not advocating a masochism. A masochism, right? Yeah. Chop, chop. Yeah. But <laughs> I'm, and I'm not advocating this type of thing, but would you rather... Let me just ask you a question, John, real quick. Then spoke the thunder. Would you rather, if you had to inhabit one part of this poem, mm-hmm. would you rather be at the end with a little rain on your head, speaking fucking Sanskrit, and, and you know, thinking about memories, obituaries, and, and being in empty rooms and being, a, being an ascetic? So you would be like an ascetic, yeah. kind of hollowed out, the end of all desire, mm-hmm. in an eternal zone. It would be like a, an it character in Portraits and Ashes. It's kind of like it. would be shaming everything. Yeah. You know, the end of all desire. You get a little rain on you. Yeah. You think about the Upanishads. Or. Yeah, or. Or is the answer. <laughs> Go ahead. Or would you rather be. Like with me, if we were in the rock, no water place, mm-hmm. and there was dry thunder and this badass stone formations everywhere, and there's secret shit in the desert, we didn't have any water, so we were hallucinating together in the <laughs> desert with this fucking clay everywhere and lightning and rock and no water. Hieronymo's mad again. I thought you were going to ask me if I wanted to be in the decadent city with dissolute women. Well, I know you want to be there. <laughs> right. I know you want to be <laughs> I want to be at the first part of the poem. <laughs> I want to be in the rock, no water place, okay. tripping out. Yeah, yeah. Hieronymo's mad again. 
rock and no water. Yeah, and and because that to me, I'll make little pictures in the clay. Mm-hmm. I'll write little words on the cave wall. Yeah, that to me is where we arrive. Okay, that's interesting. Um, yeah, I love rock no water. Now I I like the beginning. I like I the the London he experiences as horror sounds fun to me in certain ways. I want to be. I want to bury these scrolls, man, in the desert, and I want to <laughs> yeah. go look for them with you with two rifles, <laughs> right? On no, the that, verge of dehydration. Well, now that sounds more attractive. That's the yeah, yeah. We have a mission. <laughs> that that to me is modernism. Okay, yeah. Because in that you get stony hard place. The agony in stony places. To dust you shall return. You get rock, man. You don't know what's written on the rock. You get all, tradition basically built in. You mm-hmm. get time, eons in the landscape. Um, you get the threat of nature, but also its aesthetic encouragement. Um, and you get the proximity to death and our uh, uh, the fragility of our biological existence. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I guess. I mean, there's there's many modernisms as they say in academia there's so many and mine is more the babble the chaos the the uh the just incohate desires and alienations of the of the city followed by a weekend at the metropole so in the city in the metropole so if if rock no water gives way to faulkner and to cormac mccarthy yeah and uh, to these type of writers these great furious not quite postmodernists, right I mean, they're probably more modernist. Yeah, late modernist. Late modernist. Modern. Beckett. If all rock, no, definitely Beckett is yeah. in the th- dry thunder. Mm-hmm. But if if that gives way to that school, what does the metropole sensibility get? Which writers does the metropole sensibility part one, two, and three give way to? Uh, Joyce, Wolf. Okay. Um, even the Harlem Renaissance to a point, though, the connection's not obvious but or and then later writers like Saul Bellow Don DeLillo like great writers of the teeming city what about this third person we have to talk we have to talk about yeah maybe I'll read that so this is right after the part you read about the rock and no water so we hit the zone we hit the zone zone. yeah and this come to you have to imagine two guys in the desert walking who is the third who walks always beside you who is the third who walks always beside you? When I count, there are only you and I together. But when I look up the white road, there is always another one walking beside you, gliding, wrapped in a brown mantle, hooded. I do not know whether a man or a woman, but who is that on the other side of you? Well, it's got to be Tiresias. Well, yeah, so there's three... The androgyny. Right. There's a couple... So he actually got this from a source you don't think of Eliot reading, which is a memoir by... A Antarctic explorer who said that this was an actual delusion they had when they were wandering through Antarctica. This happened to them. They they like hallucinated a person who wasn't there. So that's where Eliot gets it. But it's also an allusion to a passage in the Gospels in Luke 24 where two men are on the road to Emmaus and the, this is after the crucifixion, The that period where Christ is resurrected but not ascended into heaven yet and he's walking beside him and they don't recognize him well what's what's interesting is that when the speaker counts so the speaker is observing you and i when the speaker counts there are only you and i together yeah but when i look ahead up the white road there is always another one walking beside you yeah so what is it about in the process of counting or in the computational mode like right he sees two 
But in the process of looking and walking, yeah, there's a third. Well, it's back to that Dostoevsky, like the only wisdom is uh, two plus two equals five. Or, yeah, two know, equals three. Two equals three. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so we have we have a premonition of his religious conversion if it's Jesus. We have he he says in the notes, which he kind of wrote just as a like they asked him to fill out uh, they were going to publish this as a book and they're like there's not enough pages here can you write yeah. something? so he wrote these notes. So they're kind of like a he kind of was had his tongue in his cheek, but he says in the notes that he considers Tiresias the mythical figure, the mythical prophet who had lived as both a man and a woman, to be the speaker of the whole poem because he contains all of these voices. So if it's Tiresias, then we have this figure of visionary, androgynous authority who contains the poem's yeah, multitudes. That's, that's so good. Yeah. that's Because uh, it's such a... He can cover so much time so quickly. Yeah. He can compress so much... A source tradition into one single blow of a poem. Mm-hmm. It's a, that mixing ability, that amalgamating is very, very impressive. And probably something something instructive for us as artists today yeah. in our exponentially increased like um, information environment. Right. And yeah, I think the one of the things you can learn from this poem as a writer is the courage not to explain, just compress. Hmm. And if it's and mix and mix, and if what you're compressing and mixing are good, people figure that. Yeah. You know, back to that third person really quick. What if that third person, and I've, I've actually, I've, I've felt him for this, for most of this conversation. I felt a third mm-hmm. talking about it, Elliot. Mm-hmm. And what if that third, that third who walks always beside you? What if when you're reading Elliot, that's the sense of verging onto meaning or verging onto profundity, and then it's there and lurks as you read through the poem, but you can't quite see it. But then as soon as you look up to count or to try to take account of that profundity, it disappears or it becomes two again. Yeah. So like this elusive. The, the meaning of the poem. Yeah. The meaning. Is the third who walks yeah. always beside yeah. you. Yeah. yeah. The minute you begin to count it, the minute you begin to formulate critical um, theories around it, the minute you begin to record a podcast and try to explicate it for an audience that third turns into two. Yeah. <laughs> the minute you stop doing it, you feel, you feel it, it again. again. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I too awaited the expected guest. Wasn't so bad, John. Yeah, it's pretty good. <laughs> so I thought we'd also say a few words about Eliot's final great poem, Four Quartets. Um, I don't know how much we'll be able to say. It's it's a longer and in many ways more complex kind of mind-bending poem than The Wasteland. Fair forward, travelers. 
if not as well known. Um, I'll just give a little context. In 1927, Eliot converts to Anglicanism. He was raised, I think, actually, I think you can understand a lot about his politics if you understand that he was raised by Unitarians um, and his sort of bitter contrarian conservatism was, I, I kind of think, because I'm a bad person, a kind of natural reaction against that overly sunny progressivism of the Unitarian worldview. You know, Anglican is one step away from Catholicism. Right. But I read this G.K. Chesterton essay one time which said, the youth of today, they have three modes of rebellion. One, bohemianism. Two, uh, communism. Three, Catholicism. Yeah. So Anglicanism, Catholicism, high church right. as a way to rebel against American mm-hmm. patriarchy. Yeah. It's actually, it's very similar to now where all the youth are either communists or trad cath reactionaries or dirtbag bohemians. Uh, I mean, I feel like we're living in the same world. Distracted from distraction by distraction. Um, there are eerie similarities to that time a hundred years ago. There which are. Is, yeah. This and other this well this was written in 1930. Yeah, so the four quartets is later, so that's the 30s and the 40s. Yeah, yeah. So he converts he converts to Anglicanism because he he likes that. In theory, he likes that it's supposed to be between Catholicism and Puritanism, but he he likes that high church almost Catholic aspect, and he defines himself. I love the three part description. I feel like this is a game everyone should play. Is uh, I am blank in aesthetics, blank in politics, and blank in religion. Yeah, maybe uh, we can set up a little Mad Lib for, on our webpage. Yeah, maybe we could. Um, but yeah, he says he's classicist in aesthetics, which is false. Uh, he's royalist in politics, which is sort of meaningless. And he's Anglo-Catholic in religion, which is sort of true. Mm-hmm. Um, the point is to lie, Yeah, <laughs> right. <laughs> <laughs> so That is not what I meant at all. That is not it at all. His great conversion poem is called Ash Wednesday, which I recommend. Uh, And it has a great opening line for a poem about religious conversion. He says, because I do not hope to turn again. You know, I Hmm. I want to find something where I can rest. And Um, another example of his obsession with uh, the unification of a sensibility, perhaps the sense of a high church Anglicanism with the intellect of a sort of American. Yeah. meritocratic protestantism right exactly so many yeah. things are being unified in this poem yeah um so he writes the four quartets he doesn't immediately write it as a sequence he writes a first poem called burnt norton all the uh there's four parts of four quartets i mean obviously because um, it's called four quartets four quartets 16 <laughs> right um, but each part is named after a place um uh, so Burnt Norton is a uh, manor house in the Cotswolds, which is a little village in England. I actually was in the Cotswolds once, um, but that's another story. Um, but anyway, he writes this in 1936, and then he realizes in the 40s that he can build on this. So in 1940, then 41, 42, he writes three more parts. We had the experience but missed the meaning, and approach to the meaning restores the experience in a different form. And there's, I think, two main things to to think about this poem. One is that it's the monument of his religious conversion. It's his devotional verse. It's his religious, his spiritual verse. It's great Christian verse. For a further union, a deeper communion. And then the other thing 
to think about. And it really is his last major poem, even though he lived many years after writing it. Um, I think after that, he just wrote those poems about the cats. Um, but this is the poem. And it's okay that it's his last poem, though, because it's where he finds his synthesis. It's where he fuses time and eternity. At the still point of the turning world. Um, but then the other uh, political historical context we'd want to think about this poem in is, again, that topic of T.S. Eliot and war. He writes the last three parts of it during World War II, during the Blitz, when England is under bombardment. By this time, he's fully an Englishman and identified with England. So among other things, it's the culmination of his politics because you get a vision of England as, um, <laughs> if it's not too uh, untoward to borrow a phrase from Steve Bannon, uh, he creates a vision of what, he, what Bannon calls inclusive nationalism. And I think Eliot provides inclusive nationalism in this poem. Well, I'd like to hear more about that and where you've discerned that. Well, that's in toward the end of the poem. Oh, um, so we're beginning at the end. Yes, in my which end is fine because is my beginning, <laughs> which is fine. Yeah, this poem. The whole point of this poem, I think, is to defeat a progressive idea of history. Um, I, I don't mean that politically. I just mean let me say it this way: to defeat a linear idea of history. And to come up with an idea of history where time and eternity are the same thing. Right. So so just as a principle um, or as a nice mode with which to understand different political conceptions of history, would it be fair to say sort of liberal progressive history sees it as, like you said, linear and a more conservative reactionary history would see it more as circular and returning and things returning. Is yeah, that fair? it is. But I think he's beyond both of those in this because he doesn't want it to move at all. He wants time and eternity to be the same thing. It's mystical. It's like Blake, an eternity in a grain of sand. Suspended in an eleotic fluid. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, and toward the end of the final poem in the sequence, which is called Little Gidding, <laughs> which... Makes you me love it. Laugh. It sounds like a cartoon character. You laughed at it in 2017. You laugh at it now. Right. Uh, but oh, by the way, that. Oh, I'm little kidding. Oh, okay. <laughs> Sorry, go on. <laughs> That's right. Oh, yeah. Treat our audience. <laughs> it's like, like Paddington Bear or something. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> you were going to say? I was going to say that what you're talking about, suspension of history, time collapsing, I would say only available. In literature. The backward look behind the assurance of recorded history, the backward half look over the shoulder toward the primitive terror. I think so, yeah. Probably. So yeah. Or just a. Some kind of. Disclaimer. Some kind of artistic or mystical, extraordinary. Like you wrote on johnpacelli.com uh, um, in the essay, or maybe it was on the Tumblr, with regards to a, uh, a now deceased writer. What was it? Uh, the life was the books is right. What is that phrase? That yeah, I use that in reference to who I don't remember. Oh, Kipling. 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 Yeah, <laughs> um, I was talking about how Kipling was a mystic when he wasn't being an imperialist um, in text in it, what he published. Yeah, exactly. Which is now. So what was the pithy phrase? I said because I was talking about Kipling, and I said he his in his life he was an imperialist, but in his book he's a mystic. And I said I. I deliberately say was for his life and is right. for this book. It's a nice formulation. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Um, so Little Gidding, <laughs> you might be, if you're still wondering what that is, it's not a stuffed cartoon bear. Um, it refers to a small Anglican community established in the 17th century 
that was sort of destroyed in the English Civil War. So right away he's invoking English history. But later in the poem, Little Gidding, which concludes the four quartets, he says, If I think of a king at nightfall, of three men and more on the scaffold, and a few who died forgotten in other places here and abroad, and of one who died blind and quiet, why should we celebrate these dead men more than the dying? And those men he's talking about, the the three men are men who are, I think— um, people involved in Charles the First government, but the king at nightfall is Charles the First. What do you want to know about that period? Yeah, you know a lot more about <laughs> than I do about that period. Um, but I do know Charles the First was executed uh, That and that is part of the English Civil War between... Tell the, you about Henry Ireton. <laughs> who's praise God barebone? Um, but, you know, he's executed by the Puritans. But who's the one Eliot refers to who died blind and quiet? Milton, the great Puritan poet. And what Eliot's doing here is mourning together Charles I and Milton. He's bringing the nation kind of together. Mm -hmm. He's saying we can synthesize. Um, we can kind of get over these divisions in this moment of the trial of the nation. Interesting. And he, uh, he goes on, he says, we cannot revive old factions we cannot restore old policies or follow an antique drum. These men and those who oppose them and those whom they opposed accept the constitution of silence and are folded in a single party. Whatever we inherit from the fortunate, we have taken from the defeated what they had to leave us, a symbol, a symbol perfected in death. And all shall be well, and all manner of things shall be well by the purification of the motive in the ground of our beseeching. Hmm. Wow. Sounds like LBJ in 1964. <laughs> well, it, Bound I, in union. <laughs> it's actually in liberty. He's quoting um, Churchill. Churchill would say during the Blitz, all shall be well. But that's from a, uh, I think, a hymn from the Christian mystic Julian of Norwich. So mm. he's drawing the political and religious traditions of England together to create this mystic union of the nation in which the factions and the sectarianism can be healed and we can be brought together in this moment of crisis. As only an American could do. Yeah, it's a, it is, it's a very American <laughs> hope, isn't it? But that's the thing. People would do well to – younger people would do well to study that time in English history because of – how much those lessons bared on the formulation of our country and the direct descendants of those intellectual political classes which which founded America and how much they were influenced by um, the First Republic in, in 1650. And when people think about republicanism, I mean, ah, this is this is hot stuff. This is this is stuff that you want to look at, but you you look at and you you begin to get a sense of how, just how powerful it is, that history, and Anglo history, and Anglo-English, and ultimately American history. Because if people want to think about republicanism, it's def the definition we have today, the, defin uh, the spirit behind the definition which runs through us today, it's not, imp it's not imperial Rome with its, with its um, chambers of senators. It's not quattrocento Italy with its patronizing of the arts and its its um its cosmopolitan sort of uh, 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 vernacular like almost pl pluralism and 
It's not any of that, any of that shit. That's not the definition we have. The definition we have of you really want to know what it is to be a Republican, a smaller Republican. You want to know what Republicanism is today in this world, how it functions definitionally. You go to 1650 and you find out that the definition of Republicanism is killing a king. Yeah. That's Republicanism. Mm -hmm. It's killing a king. Yeah. I remember David Haley come on the pod. David Haley telling us in our Milton and Revolution seminar— I, I never. This is too good to check. I don't know. This is true. I hope it's true. That <laughs> the reason the capital is called a capital is because it's the head of the king, the the caput, the head of the king that you killed to found the nation. This is this is the truth. Yeah. This is what, and this is also what reactionaries and monarchists alike are up against, whether they know it or not. Mm-hmm. So yeah, <laughs> these are Anglo people, <laughs> right? <laughs> um, the skull, the capital. <laughs> so, um, but you know, it's not predominantly a political poem. It's, yeah, it's mainly sorry religious. To, sorry to ruin your no, your, no. Your, your ode to unification with a, <laughs> with a killing with a veiled threat to all, <laughs> yeah. all monarchists on the on the American far right. Right, um, but uh, you know, it's predominantly a devotional religious poem. And here that we also see his cosmopolitanism, his syncretism, because one of his biggest influences here is the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu scripture um, from the long Hindu epic, the Mahabharata. Um, I don't think most non-Hindus read the entirety of the Mahabharata, but— I know plenty of pseudo— Hindus in the West. Right, yeah. Put that on their shelves. <laughs> but have they read it? I mean, <laughs> um, but the Bhagavad Gita is the the heart of it, the, the spiritual teaching in it. It's often compared to like the, like the, the Sermon on the Mount or something. Um, and what happens in the Bhagavad Gita is the Mahabharata, sort of like the, the Iliad in the West, it narrates a war, a kind of founding war for this culture between these sort of factions of a family. And the Bhagavad Gita is a moment where the prince Arjuna is going out to fight in the war, with him. he's being driven in a chariot, and he has this moment of Hamlet-like hesitation. How can I kill? How can I kill my brothers? How can I commit violence? Shouldn't I just renounce this way? And he asks the charioteer for advice, and it turns out the charioteer is the Lord Krishna, one of the major gods of the Hindu pantheon. And the Krishna turns around and <laughs> tells him exactly, you know, here's why you're going to do the war, um, and then reveals him. It's a remarkable book. It's like the book of Job where God speaks out of the whirlwind, uh, Krishna's mm-hmm. revelation of himself. But the the basic advice he gives to Arjuna is you have to do all the dirty business of this world, whether you like Man. it or not. Man. What you have to do is keep your mind pure, keep your mind devoted Ooh. to me. Um, this, so you, is, this is the dark side of the ethics of the Orient. <laughs> well, be, be careful. Be careful. <laughs> this is the dark side of the ethics of the Orient. Right um, here. That sound here is Edward Said spinning in his grave. Yeah. Um, but What the, does he say? The point is that you can't just renounce. That's too easy. You can't just yeah. renounce this world or turn your back on this world. That's too easy. The best thing to do is to act 
with complete detachment. Oh, of course. He yeah, says, relinquish yeah. the fruits of action, mm, just yeah. act. Um, I hold the blade, you know, <laughs> what am I? I'm nothing. The blade, what is it? Nothing. What is your abdomen is nothing. It's right, right. total detachment, so I stick it in, and it's not me sticking in, but it's some flux of... of of the of the universe, which I I have no attachment to, blade yes. in abdomen. Right. Yes. I I don't think my invocation of Edward Said, notwithstanding, I think there's a kind of a phony benevolence with which we pretend other traditions are less alien than they are. But I think this is very alien to sensibilities reared in a Jewish or Christian cosmos. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, but Eliot was very attracted to it because he has this desire. Well. Ironically, he has this desire to not have desire. Descend lower. Descend only into the world of perpetual solitude. This is a classic hipster moment for him. <laughs> well, yeah. He was into it because no one else was. <laughs> that could be If too. he would have come back today. <laughs> he wouldn't be into it. Hell no. Um, but he says in, in, there's a line in the Four Quartets, um, teach us to be still. Teach us to, mm. to be still, to turn to turn away from these furious motions of the world. So it's in that way a mystical poem. And he recreates, it's it's kind of funny, he recreates the Bhagavad Gita, but now it's a guy on a train instead of someone in a chariot. Mm -hmm. So he, he again fuses the modern and the mythic. Mm-hmm. What else, Sam? What do you have to say about the four quartets? The wounded surgeon plies the steel that questions the distempered part. I Beneath that. the bleeding hands we feel the sharp compassion of the healer's art, resolving the enigma of the fever chart. Our only health is the disease if we obey the dying nurse, whose constant care is not to please, but to remind of our and Adam's curse, and that to be restored, our sickness must grow worse. Do you remember where I stole that? Who said that Elliot can't write in verse? <laughs> Who said that? He's flexing, man. That's what the kids say today. I'm flexing. I'm flexing in verse. Ridiculous. You're not taking my bait, but I refer my readers to... Oh, well, yeah. What were you saying? Chapter two of Portraits and Ashes is titled The Wounded Surgeon. Oh, my God. Read <laughs> Portraits and Ashes. Read Portraits and Ashes. That's the... It's. I'm not going to say it's the best one, but it's the... That one is... Everything is navy blue, black, and red, baby. <laughs> yeah. I mean... <laughs> it's, it's the most intense book I yeah. think I've ever written. Yeah. Oh, boy. Sorry, I'm making this all about myself. What do you like about the four quartets, Sam? Well, hmm. Hmm, let me think. You say I'm repeating something I've said before. I shall say it again. Shall I say it again? Part of this poem is that things are inadequate, and these, these mediums such as word to transmit meaning are only valuable in so far as they obliterate meaning or that they get you to a point of a still point in a turning world mm -hmm. which is a stressful position to be under it is, i mean yeah. it's not envi enviable no but instances where he says like and this is in burnt norton words strain crack and sometimes break under the burden under the tension slip slide perish decay with imprecision will not stay in place will not stay still that sentiment in relation to his own uh, style and syntax. Yeah, he's very hard on himself. It's one of the most moving parts of the poem is his meta-reflections on his own poetic art and career. Later in, um, sorry, yeah, it's in East Coker, he describes 
He says, so here I am in the middle way, having had 20 years, 20 years largely wasted, the years of L'Entre-du-Guerre. So that, that's his whole career. The years of L'Entre-du-Guerre between the two wars, his whole career are wasted, he sees. So, I mean, there's kind of a pun there because mm -hmm. the wasteland uh, is the key yeah. work, but he's kind of dismissing all his work. But he later in that passage, he gives, I think, one of the best single phrase definitions of making, creating literature I've ever heard, which he calls it a raid on the inarticulate. Like Perfect. You're, you're just looking for a way to say that thing you can't say. Um, so, yeah, a lot of the four quartets... It's a poem I can become impatient with because of all the paradoxes. Um, you know, time present is time past and my end is my beginning. It feels kind of abstract and dry. But if you hear that, um, one, of the, one of the more interesting contemporary literary critics is a man named Gabriel Giuseppovici, and he has an essay called Listening to the Voice in Four Quartets. And he says, if you learn to read those passages in his voice, not not the voice you hear when you look him up on YouTube where he sounds like Hannibal Lecter, but uh, like the voice of a person, the sort of still small voice of a man turning and tossing with insomnia, trying to think his way through these things. If you don't hear them as just a philosopher telling you these axioms and propositions, but as this searching, questing voice, it mm. becomes a more moving and human poem. I am here or there or elsewhere. Words move. Music moves only in time. The wave cry, the wind cry. The river is within us. The sea is all about us. Well, one place to begin to comprehend great artists and perhaps great philosophers, I don't know, for me has always been because I see the existence of opposites and paradoxes i know here we go again it's <laughs> they're not going away folks nope <laughs> um but the the latent opposites in creation as martin Buber put it uh one um it seems every great artist has to is aware of that obviously and has to find a way to deal with it and as far as i can tell there's one of two ways of doing it one two broad categories of dealing with the opposites and then within them like infinite number of different sub methods but the first category is to simply bathe in them and embrace them and play in them like a uh a, a delirious and energetic child um and then the second way the second category is to tr try to find ways to unify them or find resolutions mm -hmm. consciously within your form and yeah and so i don't this is not i wouldn't say this is the first no i think something like notes from underground would be yeah the first so mm -hmm. going all out in, right in the the immersion into without too much concern of, of resolution. Right. Or even like Walt Whitman. Yeah. I contradict myself very well. Sure. Yeah. 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 A lighter, very, a lighter <laughs> more flavor. Po more yeah. happy, yeah. positive. Yeah. yeah so. um, but here there's, uh, there's such a 
rapid and dense deployment of opposites in this poem. Yeah. My end is my beginning, neither flesh nor fleshless, neither from nor towards. Um, um, and it goes on and on, and it's, and it can be almost irritating and, and destabilizing. But I think the ubiquity of that fixation on the opposites is some, there's some other things going on attempting to arrest them into stability. Mm -hmm. And this, for me, this gets into the unification of sensibility broadly. Yeah. Which is... Because Eliot in his criticism said that the sort of crisis that happens in the middle of the last millennium is the what he calls the dissociation of sensibility. And that brings about romanticism and science and Protestantism where a poet, in his telling, a poet like Dunn felt and thought as the same thing, or still more, a poet like Dante mm -hmm. felt and thought as the same thing. Whereas with the breakup of all sorts of unities, with the Reformation, the Scientific Revolution, etc., we feel and think separately, mm -hmm. and our emotions are consequently uncontrolled, and our thoughts are consequently unanchored. And he's looking for a way to reunite thought and feeling. Sure. So when things like... There would be no dance, and there is only the dance, he says, in Burton Norton. This is the one way. The other is the same, not in movement, but abstention from movement. So there's only the dance, but this is the one way, abstention from movement. Yeah. Time past and time future. Continued repetition of in my beginning is in my end. Obviously, for the pattern is new in every moment, and the every moment is a new and shocking valuation of all we have been. Patterns being new. So has a pattern new. Yeah. We are only undeceived of that which deceiving could no longer harm. We're only undeceived through deceiving. Yeah. In order to arrive there, to arrive where you are, to get from where you are not, you must go by a way wherein there is no ecstasy. In order to arrive at what you do not know, you must go by a way which is the way of ignorance. In order to possess what you do not possess, you must go by the way of dispossession. In order to arrive at what you are not, you must go through the way in which you are not. And what you do not know is the only thing you know. And what you own is what you do not own. And where you are is where you are not. Why would someone say stuff like that? It, I, to me, it doesn't strike me as unabashed indulgence in obviously... Reality is full of opposites that are that are closely in close proximity and have powerful magnetic imaginative properties. Obviously, obviously, you got to be stupid not to see that those. But why would someone? It doesn't seem like he's abusing them. It seems like he's using them in a way that. Yeah, because I, for him, I think it gets to the divine. The, 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 for him, it's a, it's a genuine spiritual quest. So it's not just an indulgence in paradox for its own sake or for a nihilistic sake to say nothing really makes any sense. Nothing adds up. Everything is scattered and disconnected in the way that a nihilistic writer would be interested in using paradox in that way. But for him, he's, he's genuinely, I think as a sensibility, he's genuinely horrified 
by disorder in ways that aren't reducible to castigating him for a conservative politics. But we could, but I think we can also see it as a genuine spiritual disposition an inclination toward this mystic union of opposites in which we don't have to live in an alienated way. And what you do not know is the only thing you know, and what you own is what you do not own, and where you are is where you are not. And then part of the consequence of that for aesthetics is found in the the last line of the poem, where he says, the fire and the rose are one, which I take to mean the creation and destruction need to be the same thing. The only wisdom we can hope to acquire is the wisdom of humility. Humility is endless. Mm -hmm. That every great work of art, and this is why he's not a simplistic traditionalist, He's engaged with tradition, he's at war with tradition, he's using tradition, he's abusing tradition. Every great work of art destroys to create a place for itself, but it stands in the place of what it destroyed and becomes what it destroyed. And so creation, destruction, these become two facets of the the cosmic order. To be conscious is not to be in time. To be conscious is not to be in time. To be conscious is not to be in time. (laughs) 